we're gonna play a game. You guys like games? All right, so I'm going to read some text from the websites of all of our churches. And when you hear a statement that you recognize, I want you to shout out the name of the church whose website that comes from. Make sense? Okay, so here's the first one. We exist to... <laughs> oh, you guys! Ooh, quick. I'm going to read it, though. We exist to see the inland Northwest and the nation saturated with the good news of Jesus. All of life. All right. Okay, here's another one. Know Jesus, make him known. Revelation. There you go. Not, not as enthusiastic there. Uh, we desire to know, obey, and preach Jesus and to equip the church to do the same. Transform. Yeah. Okay, there's only one left. <laughs> we form disciples of Jesus. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's Doxa. Yeah. We form disciples of Jesus Christ in community through the gospel for God's glory. And it's in all caps on the website. So they mean it, right? Yeah. What, what is going on here? This is, this is what we call mission. We as churches believe that we are on a mission and mission matters right? It's, mission is so important that Jesus himself gave us a mission. He writes, or Matthew writes about this in, in Matthew 28. He says, Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so this mission that we all, we all tweak to suit our personalities and our culture, but our four churches all have the same mission and it's Jesus' mission to make disciples. The apostle Paul deeply internalized this mission. He was all in on making disciples. In all of his writings, he's just constantly talking about the missions, uh, to the mission. In, in the book of in the letter of the Romans, he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. To the Thessalonians, he says, after we'd previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. When something is important to you, it just comes out of you, doesn't it? Maybe you have the single origin coffee friend or the CrossFit friend. I have a friend named Kevin. He's a pastor in Vancouver, Washington. And, and when I got to know him, I, I found out that he likes movies. I didn't realize how much he liked movies until I found out that he literally watches hundreds of movies a year. I didn't know they made that many, but he lives right across the street from a movie theater and he's got all, one of those like all you can watch passes. So he goes to every single movie. And I know this because he has a spreadsheet that he keeps track of all of his movies. I've seen the spreadsheet. And he rates the movies and he, he can sort them by cells. And some of you are like geeking out on that. Well, I should do that with my movies. He loves movies. Some of you guys have Super Bowl parties. He has Oscar night parties. And there will be money that changes hands. And when Kevin preaches, he uses movie illustrations because he can't help himself. It just, it just oozes out of him. He's so passionate about movies. Paul's love for the mission of Jesus is the same way. And honestly, I think we love this about Paul. We love this about being Jesus' people. You've got a job to do, church. 
That's exciting to most of us. We, we're inspired to be part of a team, saving souls and taking names, right? And this, this is amplified in us, especially because we're Americans, because we get stuff done. My weekend is spent taking multiple trips to Home Depot, not Lowe's. You know why? Because Home Depot is where doers get more done. I like it. A lot of you are, are young people. You're in your teens, your 20s, and you're asking this question, like, what am I supposed to do with my life? What does God want for me? Where am I supposed to go? Career and family and school and all these questions. And that's a, such a good question. And we're not gonna talk about it this morning. In 2 Corinthians chapter three, I'm gonna read a good section of it. We're gonna unpack it a little bit for context and then we're gonna zero in on verse 18. Paul is talking about his mission again. Such is the confidence we have through Christ before God. It is not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. He has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death chiseled in letters on stones came with glory so that the Israelites were not able to gaze steadily at Moses' face because of its glory, which was set aside, how will the ministry of the spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry that brought condemnation had glory, the ministry that brings righteousness overflows with even more glory. In fact, what had been glorious is not glorious now by comparison because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was set aside was glorious, what endures will be even more glorious. Since then, we have such a hope, we act with great boldness. We are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from gazing steadily until the end of the glory of what was being set aside. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains. It is not lifted because it is set aside only in Christ. Yet still today, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the spirit. Okay, that's a lot, right? So Paul is reflecting on a story from the history of the people of Israel in Exodus 34. And what's happened is Moses, God has delivered Israel from Egypt by the hand of Moses and they've gone out to Mount Sinai to receive the 10 commandments, to be brought into this covenant with Yahweh. Yahweh says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Moses goes up to the top of the mountain to receive this covenant and he's gone for a long time. It's an uncomfortably long time. And everybody's like, I don't know what's going on. What happened to Moses? And they decide to take matters into their own hands and they craft this golden calf. And they say, this'll be God. This is, I'm sure this is what God looks like. We'll follow this. And they have this big orgiastic party. And Moses comes down the mountain and he's furious about this because this is what we call idolatry. One of the 10 commandments, not don't do that. And he throws down the tablets, breaks them and rebukes the people. And it's, it's this whole thing. After this is all figured out, Moses goes back up the mountain to kind of talk with God about what just happened. And, and he says, hey, um, God, we need your presence. We need you to go with us. And God says, okay, I'll go with you. And then Moses like steps it up a little bit. He goes, hey, I want to see your glory. I want to I see the real you. I want to see what you're really like. 
And God says, if I show you my face, it will kill you. Because see, God's glory, God's presence in the Bible is, is described like kind of a radioactive nuclear energy. It's good, it's powerful, but it will kill you. And so this crazy thing happens. God puts Moses in this little cave and covers him up with his hand and walks in front of him and then opens up his, or uncovers his eyes and Moses gets to see like the afterburn of the glory of God's back. And his face absorbs this glory and starts glowing. And he comes down the mountain and the people see his face glowing and it freaks them out, rightly so. And so he puts a veil over his face so he can like get along with everyone. So Paul's taking this story and he's tweaking some of the details a little bit. He says, if the old covenant, that agreement that God made with the people of Israel at Sinai, if that, the law, if, if that's so glorious that Moses's face radiated supernatural light, how much more glorious is the new covenant and grace that we have in Christ Jesus? And Paul compares us to Moses that we are the people beholding the presence of Christ. But unlike Moses, we don't veil that glory from others. Those who are outside of Christ today, the ones that we are told to make disciples of, they have a veil on their hearts. They can't see Christ's glory because it is veiled. So in Paul's illustration, seeing the glory of Christ is equated to God's presence and radiating the glory of Christ is, is uh, correlated to the mission. So this is my, my big idea. If you, if, if, if you want to grab onto something this morning, this is it. The church's mission flows from God's presence. Verse 18, 2 Corinthians 3. We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul is talking about experiencing the glory of Christ here. And I want to briefly touch on three ideas that he brings up in conjunction with this. And they're these access, transformation, and purpose. My iPad just shut down because it's too hot. <clears throat> we'll just keep going. It'll be all right. He says, we all with unveiled faces. A veil limits your access, doesn't it? Covers your face. How many of you really liked wearing a mask during COVID? Some of you are like, I never wore a mask during COVID. And that's fine. God bless you. <laughs> the reason I found mask wearing uncomfortable is because I would go to the store and, you know, say something funny to the cashier and smile. And they don't know that I'm joking. And so it just got really weird. It got awkward because a veil, a covering on your face limits your access. Man, this is tiny. <laughs> we do a lot of communicating with our facial expressions, right? I can see all of yours all the way back there. And, and you're, you're, all of you are saying something to me right now. Paul says, we behold the Lord with an unveiled face. Another example you can think about is, is in, a, in a wedding ceremony. Traditionally, the bride wears a veil, right? And comes down the aisle and the ceremony happens. And the very last thing the officiant said is to the groom, hey, you can kiss your bride. And the groom lifts the veil. And now all of a sudden, 
either in reality or at least symbolically has access to this woman that he didn't have before. A veil prevents access. And, and Paul says, we, we have unveiled faces. We have complete access to Christ. We can come boldly to the throne of grace. Do you believe that? Yeah, I think, I think sometimes we don't. Sometimes we see ourselves as one of God's acquaintances, right? You know, some of you, maybe you work for a large company and you've met the CEO like six or seven times, but every time you do, they've, they're meeting you for the very first time. You ever know that? That's an awkward relationship. Maybe we think of God like that. Like, like we're, we, we got hired, we work for the company, but we like work in the basement. So we don't really have a relationship with the guy on top. But if, if you feel that this, way, this morning, that, that's, that's a lie that you are believing. We get so often worn down by the world and the flesh and the devil that, that we need just constant reminder that you are accepted in Christ. You are secure in Christ. You are significant in Christ. Christian, you matter to God. Getting this perception wrong infects everything about our relationship to Jesus. It is something that we have to fight for almost constantly on the battleground of our minds. Strahan Coleman in his book, Beholding, says, talking about prayer, I realized I'd been praying in reverse my whole life, looking for a working relationship when God longed for a friend. So the question for us is, is Jesus our bridegroom or is he just our boss? Paul says that you and I are given access to the sweet presence of Jesus. The veil has been removed from our hearts. And this is the reality that we live in. So then what does this access bring about? And that's the second thing that Paul talks about. He says, this access brings about transformation. What happens as we experience the glory of Christ? We are changed from glory to glory. The theological word for that is sanctification. It's the process of becoming holy. And this is this, this tension in our faith where we are declared saints. We are declared holy ones at our salvation. And yet that's something I doubt any of us would be comfortable putting on our business cards. Henry Nouwen has this, this line that I love. He says, For the mo from the moment we claim the truth of being the beloved, we are faced with the call to become who we are. See, our status in Christ is holy but there's a process, right? And the supernatural radiation, the glory of God that emanates from him is the energy that transforms us into a new kind of human that God has already promised that we are. And this is a weird thing to think about. One way I heard it explained recently was it's like trying to tell an acorn that they are an oak tree. Hey, little guy, you're actually that. Really? Doesn't seem like it. See, if you've been born again by the spirit of God, you are at your core a radically different person than you appear to be. And the glory of Christ shining on you is actually turning you into the kind of person that he knows that you already are. And this is a messy process. Any of you who have been walking with Jesus for a while know this. Paul compares it to looking in a mirror. But the funny thing is like, if you go to your house and look in a mirror in your bathroom, even if you have the cheapest mirror, it's going to show a really good reflection. But in the first century, the mirrors were made out of polished brass. 
And if you've ever seen a really old ancient mirror that they've dug up or whatever, you look into it and the best ones were just kind of, yeah, that's a person, I think. And it's kind of gold colored because the brass tints everything. Mirrors weren't that helpful. Seeing anything was difficult. And maybe as I'm talking right now, you're going, yeah, like, I don't even know what you're talking about. How do you experience the glory of Christ? Paul uses this analogy in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Paul recognizes that experiencing the glory and presence of Christ is a difficult thing. It can be unclear, full of starts and stops. It can be confusing. But that doesn't mean it's not happening. Solar technology is really interesting to me. It's, I, have, I've, I keep uh, filling out paperwork to see if it's affordable, and it's still not. But uh, on a beautiful sunny day like this, the solar cells absorb all of the rays of the sun and work to their utmost efficiency. But on a cloudy day, they don't just plummet to zero. They still pick up some light. They don't work as well, but they still work. Even though we do not see Christ face to face and behold him in his glory in the full, even though we're looking dimly through a bad mirror, we're still being transformed, no matter how slow that often is. By his grace, his glory is shining on you and you are being made glorious in him. What does this look like? Briefly, prayer, time in scripture, the community of the church, corporate gatherings like this one, song, the Lord's Supper. These are all normal Christian activities that have been designed by God to transform us into the likeness of Christ. This is why we do this all the time is because it changes us. Access to the glory of Christ transforms us into the image of Christ. But why? And this is where we get to the third point, purpose, purpose in the glory of Christ. In the Hebrew Bible, this is, this is question and answer time. In the Hebrew Bible, what is God's name? Yahweh. Good, good, good. Yes. So Yahweh, the, uh, the tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, is this, this name. If in your English Bibles, if you have the word Lord spelled in all caps, it's this Hebrew word Yahweh. At some point in history, the Jewish people decided that name was too holy to pronounce. And so they, when they, they would read their scriptures, they would substitute it with the name Adonai, which means Lord. About 200 years before Jesus was born, a group of Jewish scholars got together and said, hey, you know what? Most of our people speak Greek anymore and not Hebrew, so we should translate our scriptures into the Greek language. And so they, they came up with what's called the Septuagint. It's abbreviated LXX. If you see it on the bottom of your Bible, that's what that means. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And when they came to this word Yahweh that they weren't pronouncing, they were, they were saying Adonai instead, they translated it kurios, which is the Greek word for Lord. Makes sense. Say, Lord, right, Lord. So Paul comes along and he is deep in Jewish religion. He is deep in Jewish culture. And over and over and over and over again, when Paul talks about Jesus, he calls him Lord. And this is not an accident. Paul is not just picking a random title. Paul is shouting to us that Jesus is Lord, just like Yahweh is Lord. But in this verse, more than that, we see that the glory of the Lord, that we are 
invited to participate in and being transformed by comes from the Lord. The end of the verse says, and this is from the Lord who is the spirit. This verse, we see all three persons of the Trinity represented, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we are being invited in to experience the life of the Trinity itself. And this is what we are here for, to exalt, to rejoice, to glorify, to worship the three-in-one creator God of the universe, not from a distance, but from the very midst of who he is. Peter says it this way, his divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them, you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. That's a wild statement, Peter, so that you may share in the divine nature. And just to be clear, God is God and there is no other God. He is totally unique in who he is, but we are being made like him. We are being invited to be changed to be like Jesus so that we can be with him. This is the point of your life. This is why you exist. From before time began, the perfect relational community of the Trinitarian Godhead decided to create a universe from out of his own being that would be inhabited by creatures that in some way could experience and participate in the love, joy, and ultimate happiness that he experiences within himself all the time. And that's the point. And you know what's good news about this is that God doesn't need you, right? He's not lonely. He's not inept. He's not, his hands aren't tied by some cosmic law. God is perfectly happy within himself and he doesn't need you, but he wants you. He chooses you to be with him. And this is a reminder for all of us who are Christians this morning, but it's also an invitation to those of you who aren't Christian here this morning. And I don't know, maybe you've been, you just came here because you were on a walk. Maybe a friend or a family member brought you. And maybe you've heard different things about what the Christian faith is. And some of those things are, are probably pretty good. And some of them may be way off. But this is the center. Your very existence is due to the fact that God loves you. That he wants you to know him. And your sin, the attitudes of your heart and the actions of your life they, are, they make you out of alignment with his character. And that prevents you from knowing him. The supernatural radioactive glory of his goodness will kill you. Friend, you are unfit for his presence. But Jesus, God himself, born as a human man, he has no sin in himself, but he takes on the sin of the world and absorbs what we call the wrath of God and it kills him. But because he is God himself, death can't hold him. So he rises from the grave and his sacrifice on your behalf pays the penalty for your sins and opens a path for you to be united to Christ, to experience the life and the glory and the goodness of the Trinitarian Godhead. And instead of being killed, it promises to transform you into a truly whole human being who will live in that glory forever with God and his people. And this is the offer of God for you today, to remove the veil over your heart, to trust Jesus, to give your allegiance to him alone, to receive access to his life, to be transformed and to find ultimate purpose for your life in him. So why does this matter? As we wrap up, mission 
flows from presence. That's Paul's point. You read chapter four of 2 Corinthians later on, that glory that you are absorbing from Christ is radiating out into the world. And those that do not know Christ are experiencing him through you. For some reason, God in his grace has allowed us to be able to set the pace at which we behold his glory. We can choose to set up rhythms and habits and practices. We can train our hearts and minds to focus our affections on the things of God, or we can choose not to. We can live our lives focused on other things. And what I worry about us collectively is that sometimes we substitute mission for presence. We commit to working for Christ without making space to be with Christ. And it stunts our growth and godliness and it handicaps the mission because we're in danger at that point of becoming a church where people don't see Jesus in us, they just see us. So here's my encouragement to us this morning. Make it your priority to spend time beholding the glory of the Lord. Make the practice of being in his presence the most important thing in your life. David says it like this, I have asked one thing of the Lord, this is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. Paul prays for the Ephesians, I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. These aren't just vague spiritual platitudes. They speak to real everyday ways that you can orient your life to experience the glory of Christ. A meaningful prayer life, intake of God's word, worship, community, lean into and practice these things. George Mueller, who was a um, Christian leader in the 1800s in England, he, he founded a lot of orphanages and did a lot of really good work for the gospel. He says, According to my judgment, the most important point to be attended to is this. Above all things, see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. Other things may press upon you. The Lord's work may even have urgent claims on your attention. But I deliberately repeat, it is of supreme and paramount importance that you should seek above all things to have your souls truly happy in God himself. Day by day, seek to make this the most important business of your life. If you are like me, you will be tempted to spend your time putting off time with God so that you can serve God. Don't do it. Give your attention to experiencing his presence and you will be surprised at how much time you have for his mission. Um, there's a French author who's got this great name I'm going to share with you. His name is Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. But he says this, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Mission matters a lot, but the mission of our churches, the mission of your life can only be what God wants it to be if it flows from your experience of his presence. And I just encourage us all this morning, and this is, this is a sermon for me just as much as it is for anyone else. Fight for that. Search for that. Long for that. Let's pray.
You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.